five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Cube Podcast. My guest today is Colonel, retired, Pierre LeBlanc, Principal at Arctic Security Consultants. Colonel LeBlanc spent over nine years in the Canadian Arctic, where he commanded Canadian Forces' northern area for an extended five-year period. During that time, he had the opportunity to travel extensively throughout the Arctic, including formal visits to Alaska and Greenland. He is the founder of the Canadian Government Arctic Security Interdepartmental Working Group, an advisory body which compromises 11 federal departments. Today, we'll be talking about Arctic security and space. Welcome, Pierre, to the Space Cube podcast. Let's uh, first discuss um, a little bit of uh, Arctic security history. Can you give me uh, just a a brief outline of what Canada has been doing in the Arctic uh, for the last 20-odd years to uh, secure it? Yeah, certainly. Um, For me, the the Arctic, or the security of the Arctic, really started back in uh, 1972 when I did my first uh, long-range sovereignty patrol up in the very high Arctic. And that's when I fell in love with the Arctic and then on several occasions uh, made efforts to go back to the Arctic. I did go back in 1995 uh, as the commander of what was called then Canadian Forces uh, Northern Area. In the examination of my responsibility as a commander for that area, I came to a realization that there was limited communication between the various departments responsible for security in the Arctic. So in 1998, I held an Arctic security symposium that sort of highlighted the fact that we had very little situational awareness of what was going on in the Canadian Arctic. This has led in 2000 to a couple of important things. One was a presentation to Defense Management Council, uh, which I made in, in early 2000, which led to a capability deficiency study that was directed by the Chief of Defense Staff. And that was really to look at Uh, what we were missing in the Arctic in terms of security. And this has led to eventually space uh, being used as one of the main uh, venues to do the uh, security of the Arctic. In 2000, we also uh, created the Arctic Security Working Group, which brought together formally all the departments responsible for security of the Arctic or had uh, responsibilities uh, in the Arctic. And that is, you know, obviously the Coast Guard, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, uh, the Canadian Intelligence and Security Services, and so on. So that people would exchange information gathered from all sorts of sources uh, to be able to have a better understanding of what was going on in the Arctic and identify any activity that uh, may have been um, done or being done uh, illegally. And 
fast forward to today, uh, in 2017, uh, Canada's new defense policy, strong, secure, and engaged, was uh, introduced, uh, and it mentions uh, the Arctic 77 times, which you recently pointed out uh, in an article in Vanguard magazine. What's the current status of our capability to secure the Arctic? Our capability right now uh, are, are, in my in my appreciation, uh, reasonable. Uh, still need uh, there's more that needs to be done, but compared to the capabilities that I had when I was the commander uh, back in in 2000, uh, there's been a significant increase in our capability. RadarSat-1, uh, to talk of a space asset, didn't have the appropriate resolution. And the repeat, uh, the you know the the repeat uh, covering coverage of the Arctic um, to uh, to provide significant uh, degrees of of information. RadarSat two, which is in operation today, does provide uh, significant capability to observe from space in all weather, day and night. Uh, maritime activity uh, on the obviously on the surface it doesn't have a capability to to uh, spot uh, submarines that would be uh, underwater in the future we're going to have the constellation radar sat constellation uh, the first launch uh, i believe appeared uh, was done uh, last month and then ultimately we will have three satellites uh, that are going to give us a faster repeat rate all over the uh, over the Canadian Arctic, as well as a capability to go down to a three meter resolution uh, when it's in a, its a spot uh, function, and that will obviously allow us to even identify ships uh, by name um, uh, using the data that will be gathered from uh, from space. We also have a ranger program. Uh, this is probably the most cost-effective program that the uh, defense program that Canada has. The rangers are, especially in the Arctic, mostly uh, Inuit or, or Dene people that are out there on the land um, doing their normal activities. One of their function is to report anything that's uh, that's out of out of place, unusual activity or suspicious activity uh, that will be reported to uh, the Canadian Forces headquarters in in Yellowknife, uh, which is now called uh, Joint Task Force North, and then the appropriate uh, department will will then investigate uh, the issue. Their footprint throughout the Arctic is obviously very large, uh, so it, it provides essentially the eyes and ears of, of the Canadian forces on an ongoing basis. On top of that, you have obviously the Coast Guard that deployed to the Arctic uh, during the shipping season, and, and that increases the, uh, the Canadian government uh, federal presence uh, in the Arctic. You know, in terms of, of making sure that uh, the government exercises its sovereignty over the uh, over our, our uh, territories and internal waters. On top of that, uh, you have a company like Exact Earth that can provide. Um, data on shipping, maritime activity, uh, through the, the detection of the automatic identification system signals that are uh, transmitted by ships. 
the AIS, um, Automatic Identification System, is a system similar to what aircraft have in place to avoid collisions. Uh, so these are signals that are low in power and uh, exchange information between ships that are closing together to make sure there's no, uh, there's no collision. Uh, it's also used for port management. The beauty of that is that uh, Exact Earth has figured out a way of picking up those signals from space, and therefore the signals that are emitted by those, the ships that have those systems uh, can be picked up from space. That information is then transmitted to uh, the Coast Guard, for example, uh, and they can identify uh, ships that are, uh, you know, within the uh, the uh, the Canadian Arctic uh, archipelago. Now, um, sorry, just to, to, to interject here with a couple things. Uh, the the radar set constellation mission launch was actually uh, delayed again, um, so that's supposedly happening on the week of February the eighteenth, where the three satellites are going to launch from California's uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base uh, by a SpaceX Falcon Nine, and with the uh, Exact Earth. Um, AIS capability, uh, it's interesting to note that uh, uh, they have a combination of their own satellites, uh, plus they have hosted sensors on the Iridium Next constellation, uh, and that constellation is a constellation of 66 satellites, which the last batch of 10 satellites, I believe, is launching in early January. Uh, and that affords, I believe, if I understand correctly, Exact Earth, the capability to have AIS sensors uh, over uh, all of Canada operating um, uh, basically in real time uh, so that there's no lag in coverage because of the 66 satellites. Is that correct? Yeah, that's my understanding as well, yeah. Is Canada's Arctic security uh, really at risk at this time? Uh, have, have things progressed to the point where, because of climate change, uh, interest in exploiting resources, um, is it a heightened level of, uh, of risk, or is it relatively the same risk that we've faced for a long time, but now because of communications, uh, all sorts of technology advancements, we're able to better monitor the Arctic? What has really changed over the last, let's say, 20 years is this disappearing of the uh, Arctic ice. Global warming or climate uh, change, whichever way you want to call it, the, the Arctic is warming up twice as fast as the rest of the, of the planet. Um, uh, so that the ice, when the ice is disappearing, obviously it, it provides now access to, uh, to the Arctic. Um, and there's all sorts of maritime activity that is taking place, uh, more so now than, than in the past. Uh, so there's an increased risk of, uh, let's say, illegal fishing, for example, uh, vessels that would come in on, let's say, on the eastern side of the Arctic and, uh, and fish into our, our uh, waters without, obviously, the appropriate uh, authorization and, and, and permits. Um, there are 
there were concerns, uh, certainly in my days, that a, a country, a rogue country like, like uh, North Korea, for example, would want to move uh, missile systems or even uh, nuclear weapons through the Northwest Passage as opposed to go through the Panama Canal. Uh, a few years ago, one of the one of their ships uh, moving uh, missile components was actually uh, seized uh, as it was going through the uh, the Panama Canal uh, because obviously through intelligence and and technology uh, they could identify that vessel. So the risk will continue to increase. Um, in 2017, we had 176 uh, ships um, do a, a total number of over 400 trips uh, to the Canadian Arctic. Um, a number of years ago, uh, th these numbers were very, very small in nature. And as more ice disappears, we'll see more and more activity taking place. Uh, one of the activities uh, or, or one of the functions of, of government is to provide search and rescue capability. Obviously, as the number of ships continue to increase, there's going to be increased um, risk of uh, incidents in the Arctic. Uh, last summer, we had uh, a cruise ship run aground on the eastern side of the Arctic, and we also had a sailboat uh, sank in the Arctic. Uh, these activities obviously um, would, would generate um, you know, a fair amount of, of government activity, and that activity is better supported uh, when you have the right communication and uh, as well as the right information as to where things are. Um, so situational awareness becomes uh, even more important when we have these, uh, these capabilities. Pollution is also something that we need to monitor from space. Ships from time to time have, have dumped um, bilge into the into the ocean. Uh, they've leaked oil. They've done uh, dumped garbage. Um, some of that activity we can now, uh, especially with uh, uh, radar sat constellation, uh, we'll be able to uh, to have a better understanding of what's going on in the Arctic. So we need to to have good awareness of what's taking place in the Arctic, and I think space is, is probably the best venue to do that in a cost-effective manner. Now, um, you brought up an interesting point is of how important the Radarsat Constellation mission is going to be. Um, not all launches go off as you hope. Um, for the sake of argument, if Canada... Uh, lost all three satellites on, on the launch in, in February. How big a setback would that be? Yeah, that would be a, a significant uh, setback. In the military, from a security point of view, what you want is to have several sources of information so that if one of those sources fails, you don't immediately become blind to, to what's going on. Uh, NORDREG, which is the regulatory regime for our, our, uh, maritime shipping in the Arctic, ships have to report to that. So you you would have a set of data showing that you know the number of ships, what their cargo uh, is, where their destination uh, are, and so on. You can cross that reference, cross reference that information to the satellite inf information that you get from. You know whether it's a radar sat two or or a constellation. Um, 
you have the rangers that are uh, capable have a capability of of uh, reporting on, on the ships uh, the coast guard in their in their own deployments uh, can observe ships uh, either through their radar uh, because of distance or visually uh, because they they are uh, close enough to uh, to the ship but when you lose a system like constellation obviously that's that's a significant uh, capability because from space you can cover the whole of the arctic on, on a regular basis um, and with the, with the constellation with having three satellites the repeat rate would be you know uh, quite significant compared to radar sat 2 so that would be certainly a, a, a huge loss in terms of uh, of capability. Um, now, in terms of real time capability, um, the Rangers obviously um, provide a, a very useful function. But if a ship decides to uh, traverse through uh, the Northwest Passage, uh, but turns off its AIS. Um, what can we do in terms of being able to know that they're actually there? I mean, are they just going to be able to, unless a ranger spots them or another ship spots them, basically go through the Arctic without uh, being noticed? Uh, that would be difficult uh, because... Taking into consideration the fact that you know either RadarSat two is operational or the constellation is is operational um, on a, on an ongoing basis, you would get imagery of what's in the Arctic, and if there is a ship that is showing on the imagery, and there is no report of that ship anywhere, it's not reported by Nordreg, it hasn't been seen by the Coast Guard. Uh, border services never cleared the ship to uh, to come into the Arctic. Obviously, that becomes uh, now a target of interest for for the authorities. At that point, we could launch uh, potentially a, a long-range maritime patrol aircraft, the CP-140 uh, or our aircraft, to overfly that target and identify it, either visually or through uh, a combination of visual imagery, um, you know, using the onboard uh, infrared uh, forward-looking uh, radar, um, the, the cameras that are on board of, of the uh, Aurora to take pictures of that ship, communicate uh, through, uh, through radio with the ship to identify that ship and find out what uh, the ship is all about. It could be that uh, they forgot to, uh, to report to Nordreg or that their equipment has failed and that's why the AIS is not working. And on the AIS, for example, uh, if, the, if a ship uh, stops transmitting its, its AIS signal and then reignites uh, it at a point later on, it draws a straight line between the last transmission and, and the next transmission. And that line uh, can be picked up through software to identify an anomaly in the system. Um, again, that's the the intent is to identify things that are not normal, and then by cross-referencing from various sources of information, identify the uh, the ship as a as an a target of interest that needs to be further investigated. So it would be a little bit tricky for uh, for a ship to uh, to be able to go through the Northwest Passage without being seen. 
one of the areas that they need to transit is uh, basically in front of uh, Resolute Bay, where we have a number of federal agencies that are present. And at that at that point, the uh, the distance across uh, the land is such that a, sh- a ship will always be uh, visible as it goes through there. Now, it sounds like uh, with the increased traffic in the Arctic, the increased interest in the Arctic in terms of using resources, um, and we have a new uh, defense policy, but it will take some time to implement. Are we doing enough fast enough to protect Canada's Arctic? I think we can do more. Um, you know, one of the items that we haven't mentioned yet is the, the new Arctic offshore patrol vessels. Uh, these vessels, which are, have a capability to deal with uh, one meter of ice or new year ice, uh, obviously will increase uh, the, the our ability to patrol the Arctic and identify vessels of interest. Uh, but these ships are, are going to be uh, limited in numbers in terms of their deployment. Even when the, the six ships have, have been built on, on an ongoing basis, you're not likely to see more than three or four of them at any one point uh, because of training requirements, maintenance on, on ships, and, and so on. Um, the Canadian Arctic is larger than continental Europe. And that's a thing that uh, surprises a lot of Canadians when they see a map of Europe superimposed on on the Arctic and that there's room to spare. Uh, So if you can try to imagine, you know, four ships to to do the surveillance of of Europe, uh, the maritime approaches and and, uh, transit routes, uh, you'd realize that that's very little uh, assets to be able to, to cover a very, very large area. Right. So this is where space assets uh, come into play in uh, augmenting and being a part of that picture to uh, uh, to protect the Arctic. So um, are there assets that we should be considering but aren't? And if not... One, is- one that I recommended back in uh, 2000 was to put uh, what is called high-frequency surface wave radar at the choke points, the entry points to the Canadian Arctic. Uh, This kind of uh, radar can see maritime traffic up to 200 kilometers away from the the radar station. Um, And it does that uh, through bouncing the radar signal on the ionosphere, and and it reaches past the curvature of the Earth, which is the normal uh, limiting factor with with a radar, which is typically line of sight. If we were to install those systems, uh, it would provide yet one more uh, source of information, especially of the approach to our waters. Uh, in principle, you don't want to spot a, a rogue vessel once it's inside your water. You want to spot it when it's outside of the waters so that we can prevent it from coming into the, uh, into the Canadian waters. Uh, you know, if it's a rust bucket from Asia uh, that is leaking oil, we don't want it in our waters, period. We want to be able to stop it outside of, of, uh, of those waters. Um, so if you watch the, the uh, choke points, obviously you spot everything that comes in through those choke points 
And again, to the point I was making earlier, you can then cross-reference that information to the other uh, surveillance uh, systems that we have in place to identify ships of interest that would need to be investigated a little bit further uh, to find out if you know if everything is above board or if we need to to take some uh, legal action against those vessels. Now, the. You know, when it comes to dealing with uh, freighters, with cruise ships, uh, tourism, uh, those are relatively benign in terms of, uh, you know, we know what they're doing. Uh, But uh, when it comes to, let's say, uh, disputed areas within the Arctic, where another nation says, um, you know, we dispute your claim, and uh, they then go in there with... Uh, research vessels that are going to uh, uh, look for, let's say, oil beneath the surface uh, in the high Arctic, uh, and they get accompanied by, let's say, a government uh, uh, Arctic um, icebreaker or even a military ship. How, How do we deal with something like that? Uh, this would be something uh, quite tricky to uh, to deal with. Uh, we certainly have uh, in kind of the capability to uh, to attack any vessel that comes into uh, into the Arctic. Um, let's say through the use of uh, uh, our Canadian Forces uh, CF-18 aircraft. Uh, once we've identified a target of interest, uh, we do have the capability to coerce that target to uh, do whatever the government is, is ordering that target to do. Where it would be tricky is if uh, a rogue vessel was accompanied by a warship from a from a nation. Uh, that would obviously complicate uh, matters uh, significantly. Uh, then again, on 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 the protection of of the Arctic, uh, our biggest assets are our distances. On the south, we have the U.S., which has been a defense partner for for decades, and then we're protected essentially by three oceans. So any nation that wishes to uh, illegally enter the Arctic uh, faces a logistical uh, challenge. If they want to deploy armed forces in the in the Canadian Arctic, uh, that makes it uh, you know very much of a uh, of a challenge from the, for them from a uh, from a supply or logistics uh, point of view. Whereas for us, it is uh, much easier to deal with with a threat than to the Arctic because we are here physically uh, present. We have the forward operating location for our F-18. We have maritime long-range patrol aircraft that, that can be thrown in, into the mix. And then shortly, we'll have the uh, Arctic offshore patrol vessel that have a, a limited uh, combat capability, but nevertheless, a, a combat capability capability. Uh, the Arctic, uh, fortunately, is, is seen very much as in a zone where there's uh, extensive cooperation by all parties that are interested in, in the Arctic. Um, so the, the likelihood of a, uh, of a conflict in the Arctic is somewhat very limited. Now, uh, in terms of another asset that we're looking to uh, procure, um, the Enhanced Satellite communi- Communication Project Polar, uh, which, uh, from what I understand, is uh, a part 
or is replacing in part what was the uh, going to be the Polar Communication and Weather Satellite Project, which never uh, got funded. The, uh, and this project, the Enhanced Satellite Communication Project Polar, is referred to as uh, ESCAPE. Um, doesn't look like it'll be operational until the late 2020s, and that's upwards of 10 years from now. Why, why does it take so long uh, to get a military satellite of this nature designed, built, launched, and operational? Uh, in my view, it's two things, it's money and politics. Uh, the Canadian forces, or the Canadian government uh, at large, has been very inept in procuring, in a timely fashion, uh, large uh, federal assets, whether it's Coast Guard vessels, uh, replacement for uh, resupply vessels for the Navy, the replacement of search and rescue aircraft, which function is to save Canadian lives, took over a decade to replace the uh, the aging uh, fleet that we have. Uh, so the the PCW, uh, Polar Communication and, and Weather Satellite, had a number of capabilities that were going to be somewhat expensive. Uh, the weather f- function was eventually dropped to reduce the price, but this program has been crawling very slowly forward. Uh, my hope is that actually Telesat, uh, which intends to put in service by 2022, a large constellation of low Earth orbit that will provide wideband communication anywhere in the world, obviously uh, covering the Arctic. So in, in my view, the, the escape project uh, may be overtaken by uh, the commercial activity that will provide even better service, uh, short range in terms of time, than the uh, than the escape program. So, which brings up another um, question. Um, I've asked this question in the past of other people who are actively still in uh, our defense forces. Um, what about using small satellites, which can be built, launched uh, rapidly these days, for certain capabilities that last a couple of years, and then you replace them? Is is that something that we shouldn't be uh, that we should be considering? Uh, it should probably be one of the options that uh, the Canadian government uh, considers uh, these these so-called cubesats. Uh, because that's what they look like. It's, it's like a small cube, um, you know, not not very large in in, in size. Obviously, cost is uh, is is very low. You can launch a large number of them. Um, it's it's a new technology that is not, in my view, completely proven. The U.S. Coast Guard uh, to improve their communication in the Arctic uh, have been launching some of those. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how well they, uh, this program works for the U.S. Coast Guard and if it, it proves to be you know, a very cost-effective way of, of improving communications in the Arctic, uh, then obviously that's something that uh, you know, the Canadian government should consider. 
Yeah, and I'm also thinking beyond CubeSats, um, which are really quite small. They can be like the size of a bread box uh, or a small microwave, uh, but you know, uh, something a little bit more ro- robust, uh, 50 to 150 kilograms, can still be uh, built and have payloads on it and launched uh, within a reasonable time frame these days. Uh, and with the advent of new small sat launch capability, uh, the turnaround for that uh, will eventually uh, be around six months, which when you compare that to the procurement process of a satellite like Escape for of 10 years, uh, it's sort of, um, well, it changes the equation, I think. Yeah, for sure. One of the challenges in, in that field is the, the speed at which technology changes nowadays. So, but in ten years from now, there might even be something better than the Telesat uh, low Earth orbit. Uh, they're looking at a hundred satellites. Uh, one of the advantages of having that number is if you lose one or two, uh, it degrades the capability of the system. But the system can still operate, let's say, at ninety-five percent of, of capability because you've lost a couple of satellites. If you if you lose the escape one, that's it. You you lose a hundred percent of your capability. That's true. But there are also trade-offs in terms of uh, security for those satellites being built on a, as a commercial project. Um, sometimes uh, there's some worry that uh, uh, because they have commercial capabilities that they're uh, maybe perhaps more susceptible to uh, being disrupted. Um is there anything else uh, that uh, we may have missed that we should uh, cover before we wrap up? Well, you, you touched on, on something that is of uh, concern in terms of uh, uh, continuity of communication, which I, I think is becoming a, uh, a weakness of uh, certainly the Canadian forces. And that is because more and more uh, we rely on very large bandwidth to operate internet, um, you know, reports, imagery, videos, and so on. So you need a lot of uh, bandwidth to be able to do that. A lot of the systems now use uh, satellite communication, uh, most of it uh, being geostationary. These satellites uh, in a conflict would be at risk. Um, so you, you're suggesting that you know the, the, the uh, escape satellite uh, could be destroyed. Um, that's an easy target to uh, to get to, especially during the the uh, apogee where the satellite is actually very close to uh, to Earth, as opposed to its position in the Arctic when it's going to be very high above the Earth. So it, it becomes an easy target and could be physically uh, physically attacked, uh, at which point you, you become, again, you lose 100% of your capability. So the, having a large number of, whether it's going to be CubeSat, something in between a CubeSat and a low-Earth orbit um, satellite, such as the, uh, the Telesat uh, system, uh, pr- provides some redundancy of... Uh, 
of your communication network. The other thing we haven't really touched on is the, the threat of a, uh, of a solar storm that could uh, potentially disable uh, the satellites. And recently, during one of the uh, NATO exercises, uh, it was deemed that the uh, Russians were actually jamming the GPS signals from uh, the GPS satellites, which obviously would would disrupt the uh, the quality of the uh, of the signal that uh, people were using in that in that area. So there's some vulnerability there that uh, we we need to keep in mind. And was that jamming? Was that uh, in the NATO exercise in uh, Scandinavia? Yeah, that's my understanding. Ah, okay. Very interesting. Yes, the Russians weren't happy about that with that uh, large uh, uh, demonstration. Indeed, yeah. Um, okay, so th- uh, thank you. Uh, you've provided me with, uh, or our listeners, with a great deal of useful information. I have one last question for you, uh, unrelated to our topic, but it's one I like to try to ask uh, all our guests, and that is, uh, what books, fiction or nonfiction, are you reading or have read recently that you would recommend to our listeners? Uh, I do have one, and it's one that was uh, produced by the uh, Canadian Security and Intelligence Services. It's called China and the Age of Strategic Rivalry, or Rivalry. Um, The reason I say that is that uh, China, in my mind, is increasingly of of concern as to what uh, they're doing. And this book... um, provides a good overview of of where China is, is heading in the future. Uh, China has indicated that it wanted to use the Northwest Passage as a, as a transit route, and although in its Arctic policy uh, it has indicated that it will abide by the rule of law and would respect the sovereignty of nations, they have skirted the issue of the Northwest Passage being internal waters to uh, to Canada. In the past, uh, China has promised not to militarize the Spratly Islands to a few years later do exactly that by installing uh, bases, air defense systems, missiles, and so on. Um, it says that it will respect the uh, you know, legal systems and, and the rule of law, but when a, an international court found them uh, at fault, with the relate with the issue of a sovereignty of some of these uh, Spratly Islands, um, China decided to just ignore that that ruling. So China, in my mind, is of some concern uh, in terms of what they they want to do long term. Uh, there are security issues related to their uh, high technology systems, the, the 5G uh, system that they're marketing, for example, is uh, of concern to the intelligence community, the so-called Five Eyes, of concern with you know where the information would would go if if Chinese equipment was to be put in place. China is building aircraft carriers. Aircraft carriers are power projection uh, systems, they're not defensive systems. So what are the long-term view or the long-term aims of uh, China? Uh, that, I think, is, uh, is a little bit of concern. Okay. Uh, that sounds like a, an interesting book. I'll uh, uh, see if I can find a link for it and post it in the... Uh 
uh, story that goes with the podcast when this uh, is uh, published. Uh, thank you again, Pierre, for, for being uh, my guest today. Uh, hopefully we can get you on the show again in the future to talk about uh, uh, some of the uh, new developments as they uh, happen. We'd love to do that. Okay, thank you. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash We really appreciate feedback, and to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode if you send me a comment by email i'll write back to you as soon as i can on twitter you can follow us at canada in space and if you use facebook you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page the space Q. if you like the show please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app